copy of the scriptures with you this morning. I invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans in chapter 13. Uh, It's been a while uh, since we've done a Lord's Supper exposition in in Romans. We started some years ago uh, back in chapter 7 and have worked our way through now to chapter uh, 13. Uh, Generally when I have uh, preached on days when we serve the Lord's Supper. But uh, we come now to chapter 13 and verse 8 which reads, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this time together now to stop and to consider your will for us as revealed in the scriptures. And Lord, we do pray that you would give us help, that we would draw a straight line through your word, that we would not equivocate on the left or on the right, but that, Lord, your word would come to us and all its impact and all of its truth, that you would aid us, Heavenly Father, uh, in our love one for another and in the love that we are to bear to others according to your commandment and according to your work of grace. We pray that your grace and the work of your Son and the Spirit would be exalted uh, in these uh, revelations to us through the word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, if you were going to begin a new job this coming week, you would have, I would imagine, one primary question that you'd need to answer, and that is to say to your new boss, what exactly is expected of me? How am I to fill my hours, and how many hours, and which days? What tasks need to be performed day by day? in order to fulfill my lawful commitment to this company. Hope you'd ask that. Now, when he was brought to saving faith in Jesus, Saul of Tarsus, on that road to Damascus, said to the Savior, having seen his glory, Lord, what do you want me to do? And this is a desire of every true-hearted Christian. Lord, what do you want me to do? How am I to live my life now that grace has come to me? What are you showing me in your word is your duty? So you go to a passage like Micah 6.8. He has shown you. This is something very vital. God's revelation. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Now the text before us is a text in which we come and answer that question, Lord, what do you require of me? What does the Lord require of us? Now this text that I have read comes in the greater context, which begins in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, where the apostle tells us there, I beseech you, therefore, 
I beg you, brethren, I plead with you, therefore, by the mercies of God, or in light of the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That is to say, in light of the mercy of God, not just the mercy of God, but the mercies of God, the multitude of mercies that we have enjoyed and experienced as those who have been saved by grace. In light of the mercies of God toward you in your sin, in light of the mercy of God toward you in his electing love, how should we live? If God has done all of this for us that we read of in Romans 1 through Romans 11, this grand declaration of the doctrine of justification by faith, the question comes, what is our response? How do we live? How does a man or woman, a boy or girl live when they have received such grace and such mercy from God? How will it impact them and in what realm does that impact show itself preeminently? So what's the answer to that question? What happens when a man or woman, boy or girl, comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ and all their sins are taken away because Christ suffered the fullness of the wrath of God upon the cross? Do we then isolate ourselves? We make our way to a monastery? We join a Christian commune somewhere and isolate ourselves. Well, the impact of grace is seen in the Bible preeminently uh, socially. The Christian life is a social life. It's never intended to be lived in isolation. And all of the scriptures bears this out, Old Testament and New Testament, our faith is a communal faith. We are, as believers, members of a body, a flock, a household, and a family. And with that membership comes obligations, duties, and expectations commensurate with this identity. To the church and... To the world. And so when Paul asks and then really answers the question, how do I live in light of the mercies of God? He begins to demonstrate the impact that it has upon us as churchmen and as citizens of this world. How does grace and mercy shape a life? And though we want to avoid the idea, and I don't, I want to be careful in what I say. We do want to avoid the idea that we are somehow paying God back by how we live. All right, you saved me by grace. I will now pay you back with law. We're not paying God back, but we do have a life transformed by grace, and we are to live in light of the grace that we have experienced and the revelation that we have received. We are not our own. And though on one level we say at times to unbelievers, look, I'm just like you, 
the word of God would also come and say, no, you're not. You're not like them. And the expectation of a believer is different than the expectation of an unbeliever, as we saw earlier today in our previous hour, that the carnal mind is at enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, and indeed it cannot be, and how different that is from the life transformed by grace. Not only has our record been cleansed in the sight of heaven, we have been granted a new heart and a new mind and a new power as believers. You have been loved and redeemed and forgiven and empowered by the Spirit and enlightened by the Word. And so it is. Paul opens this up in Romans 12. You love your fellow believers. And you use their gifts for their good. And you seek to live at peace, if possible, as much as depends on you with all men. And in a world of offense, you seek not your own vengeance, you give place to wrath. And then what follows, at first seems like a very strange diversion. On all of that very personal and and largely ecclesiastical Uh, And then even in your own little social circle with offenses and sins brought against you, Paul then gives a, a discussion of the Christian as a citizen of the state. And he ends that discussion of the duties of the Christian citizen by saying, and this is Romans 13 now, verse 6. Now because of this, that is because God institutes government, And because God uses government for the good of society, and therefore it is not to be resisted, unless again we are called to sin, and then we would peaceably resist, even at the cost of our lives. Because this is the case, because of this, you also pay taxes. For they, that is the authorities that exist, the authorities that are, for they are, this is an indicative, not an imperative. They are God's ministers, attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due. As a Christian citizen, what are my obligations? Taxes to whom taxes are due. Customs to whom customs. Fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Give all their due. With revelation comes a righteous expectation. God sends, as it were, a bill. And says, this is what you owe. This is what you owe to the Jew in the church, to the Gentile in the church, to the one who's angry at you. This is what you owe to the Society in which you live, give to all their due. Treat people in accordance with God's revelation and God's law. And in accordance with their standing, some have a different standing, which brings about a different response. In accordance with their standing and in your standing. Are you an authority? then there is obligate there are obligations are you under authority then there are obligations and so do so in accordance with 
the revealed will of God in accordance with your standing and their standing, but brethren, also remember in accordance with the mercy and grace shown to you. God has not only informed you, he has loved you. God has not only told you how to behave, he has been merciful to you. So having considered the specific aspect of our duty to the governing authority in a previous message, Paul now applies this principle generally to all with whom we come into contact with our neighbor. And who is my neighbor? Well, I could tell you a parable about that (laughs) that answers that question. And the answer to that question is those who are in my providential orbit but especially the household of faith. So as we come to this text and consider this issue of the debt of love, I want to begin by looking at this, the debt of love, secondly, the greatness of love, thirdly, the parameters of love, and finally, the practical heart of love. So let's begin by looking at the debt of love. Now, by debt, again, I mean what you owe in light of certain realities or certain commitments. Now, as a uh, home-owning, car-owning citizen of the Commonwealth of Kentucky, I had uh, a debt that I owed based on what my house is worth, and I had a debt that I owed based on my cards and, and, and what they are worth. Bill comes in the mail. There it is. This is what you owe in light of this reality. This is where you live. So much your house. We think your house is worth. And this is what you got to pay us as a result of that. I pay it. Now, what are my obligations? It's my obligation to the city and to the state. What about my obligations to others? Now, what we have here in this passage, as Paul says, to owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. By debt, I am referring to what we owe in light of these commitments. One has well said that this is a lasting and lifelong debt. Blessedly, some years ago, I paid off my house. I don't get a mortgage. Thank, you know, if the bank sent me a mortgage payment, I'd, I'd go to whatever uh, legal war I would to say, I owe you nothing. I paid it off. But this is a lifelong debt that I owe. And one has said, you pay on it, but you never pay it off. So again, when you receive bills in the mail, you want to ensure that what is stated is genuine debt, Genuine obligation. So Ford Motor Company were to send me a bill and I open this up and it says, in light of your new Ford Edge, this is what you're going to pay. Well, I'd say, well, I don't own a Ford Edge. And I would call them up. I never bought one. I don't owe it. I don't own it. (coughs) And therefore, I don't really owe you anything. Now, you may say that I do, but I don't. But what about one another? What about you? What do I owe you? What do I owe those within my providential orbit? 
What about one another? What about those who come across my path in the course of life? Again, especially those who name the name of Christ. What bill, as it were, does God present and expect me to pay on, not off, day by day? Well, the text says it is the debt or the obligation of love. Now, I'm not going to say here, I'm not going to Dave Ramsey this passage and say, uh, here is the exposition of why no Christian should ever be in debt on a house or on a car. I don't know that's what Paul's getting at. What Paul's getting at here is, a, is, is especially, look, you don't, to, you don't want to be, you want to pay what you owe. You want to live the life that you ought to live. You don't want to be, as it were, in debt to people all the time. You want to pay on that obligation. You want to make sure that in your transactions with others, you don't walk away not having given them the love that is due. That's the idea. Don't owe them the, the love. Pay them the love. You get that? Day by day. Now, this bill doesn't come from the person. Let's say you don't walk up every day and say to somebody, uh, hi, here's, here's the bill you owe me. It comes, as it were, from the Lord. I cannot live in expectation that you will love me. I certainly can't live in the world with this expectation. I will be grievously disappointed day by day or angry every day and perhaps even in the church day by day if I'm expecting always that you will treat me in a certain way. Now, God will deal with you on that. My duty is to love you. That's, that's, that's what I can do. Now, what might every person who comes across my path, every person with whom I speak, expect as a biblically informed Christian with whom God has been exceedingly kind and merciful and gracious? What does the Lord expect or demand of me? Now, again, you've got to go back to Romans 1 through 11. A world under sin and condemnation. I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of my sin is death. I was born in union with Adam. I am in dire need of grace and mercy from God. And that mercy has been given freely and sovereignly. Because he does have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And if by reason of my embrace of the gospel... By faith, I have hope that I am a recipient of this great grace. And if I still sin and still fail, then I know the reality, not just of saving grace, but of grace upon grace and mercy upon mercy. And if God so loved me that he gave his son to be the propitiation for my sin, then it will change how I view everything and everyone. God loves his people, and so I will love his people. God accepts his people in Christ, so I will accept his people in Christ, though they differ from me. And though at times their reading of the scriptures leads them practically to very different conclusions than it has led me, Allah, the Jews and Gentiles, and what they ate and what they drank and how they viewed Jewish feast days. Real biblical convictions that had real consequences in how they viewed one another. 
And Paul says, you all got to love each other in the light of these things and view each other with grace and mercy, even though your understanding has led you to different conclusions. But God's love also changes how I see sinners. Because I was loved while I was his enemy. And he showed kindness to me even when I rejected his grace and his truth. A kindness which eventually led me to repentance. And though the world is under his wrath, it is at one and the same time under his loving providential care. And I will strive to pay the bill when it comes with everyone every day, as it were, as I strive to love my neighbor as myself. What does grace demand of me? What does law demand of me? That I know no one anything but to love them. Now consider the greatness of love. That's the debt of love. Let's consider the greatness of love. Romans 13 and verse 8 says, For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. It is heard sometimes that a legal mindset and a loving mindset are at enmity or at odds. And that can be true. A legal mindset is a mindset that always says to another, you owe me and you haven't paid. You haven't done enough. You haven't done enough for me. That's a legal mindset. And because the law doesn't save, the law exposes, informs, exposes, and condemns, I can live with a a, a hurt or wounded attitude or an angry attitude toward others or with constant disappointment. Love without grace, a a, a loveless law or graceless uh, mindset. You can understand why I would say those are at, at odds. But that's not always the case and that's not strictly biblically the case. Because love and law are not enemies. Love and law are not at enmity. Why the law? Why the law? Well, we can answer it in several ways, in accordance with scriptures and in accordance with our creeds, confessions, and catechisms. The law does show the holiness of God. The law does show us his will for us. It shows us that we have sinned and that we have failed, and it does bring about a curse and condemnation. It does also show us our great need of Christ, and it demonstrates why we need the gospel. It also showcases what a life of obedience and holiness looks like. But on another fundamental level, the law is given to show what love looks like. This is what love looks like. This is what happens when you love God and when you love others. And what Paul reveals here, that is love is the fulfillment of the law, is very much in keeping with our Lord's teaching. And Pastor Derek will be uh, dealing with this. I say that. You're in chapter 11? All right. Good. I don't embarrass myself too much. Jim Derrick already preached on that. So 
Lord willing, he'll come, chapter 12. Then one of the scribes, verse 28, came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well as enemies, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him. The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. What does the law teach? Love God. To love your neighbor. We could make an argument that this love is demonstrated by the whole of the law under the old covenant. Why the ceremonial laws? Well, they were to point to Christ and in doing so showed in their obedience a a love to God and the prefigurement of the gospel. The civil laws which existed under Israel's theocratic state. So our confession says laws now abrogated except for the matter of general and just equity, but law given to them is a theocratic state. We are not in a theocracy. But those laws, civil and ceremonial, had application of, as we worked our way through Deuteronomy, when we were looking at all these laws, some of which seem very strange, I said, okay, what are our big umbrellas, right? How does this show how we love God? How does this show how we love one another? But what Paul is going to emphasize, and we'll see this more in a moment, is moral law. That is the law of the Ten Commandments. The moral law of God is summarized in the Decalogue, the ten words, the words spoken on Sinai, inscribed with the finger of God. And you can fit every moral imperative under one of these commandments. Go through every commandment in the New Testament, every moral imperative, And you will see how it relates to one or other of the Ten Commandments. Uh, If if you want a a good exposition of this, read the shorter, larger catechism on what is required, the sins sins forbidden, and the graces required in the Ten Commandments. And you'll see that there is an exposition of these things. But again, taking all of that aside, what is at the heart of that? When God says, worship him exclusively, commandment one, and worship him spiritually and with knowledge of revelation, commandment two, and when God says to worship him reverently, commandment three, and when God says, give to me a due proportion of time, commandment four, He's saying, this is how you can love me. So a lot of people like to talk about, what's your love language? How do you like to be loved? Well, when you love me solely and reverently and according to my revelation and honor me on my holy day, you love me. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll have your devotions. If you love me, you'll sing songs. If you love me, you'll go off in the desert somewhere. No, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That is, there is a connection between love and obedience. A husband who beats his wife or cheats on his wife may plead, as he often does, I love you. I'm so sorry. I have affection for you. But the law says he doesn't love her. 
affection notwithstanding. His actions are so contrary to the law, which shows what love is. I'll believe you love me when you love me like this. Professor John Murray said that the law is love's eyes, and without law, love is blind. Now, he also says love is the law's heart, and without love, the law is dead. But the point we're making here is that the law gives dimension to what love looks like. And so Paul quotes commandments. Now, in regard to men, now this is not exclusively, but this does give us an idea of what love looks like as it is directed and fleshed out by the law. Second table of the law shows us how to love our neighbor. And how do you want your neighbor to love you? How do I want my unconverted neighbor to love me? If I I could ask that, again, given they're unconverted, as I said, I'm not necessarily going to live with this expectation, but this is what I want. I would, for him to love me respectfully, fifth commandment, to love me protectively, sixth commandment, to love purely, the seventh commandment, to honor your property and your good name, the eighth and ninth commandment, and to live with a contentment towards you, rejoicing in what God has given to you, even if it has been withheld from them. And when I love you in that way, Paul is saying, I have fulfilled the law. I'm doing what the law says. That's this the idea is. I'm paying my debt. I am, I don't owe, if I love you in this way, debt's been placed upon me by being a creature because the moral law binds all. All who are made in the image of God, but as a new creature in Christ, it is strengthened by grace. And so the question can come, again, we need to be careful with this. I'm going to say, I'm going to, I never want to say anything that says I don't want to sound like a heretic because I should never sound like a heretic. I should never come so close to heresy that people are questioning it. But listen, light of this text, have you or are you fulfilling the law in regard to your neighbor? Now, we're uncomfortable with this language because we know, and I want to be very careful. I want to let everybody know we have visitors here. The law cannot save you. It cannot justify you. We have broken the law in thought, in word, in deed. We are under the curse of the law outside of Christ. And there is a sense in which if we look to the law, we stand condemned. If you seek to justify yourself by the law, Christ died in vain. But when you ask, Lord, you have loved me with an everlasting love. You have loved me when I was dead in my sins and trespasses. And even when I was your enemy, your tender mercies were over me. You send the rain and the sun on the just and on the unjust. And I want to love others as my neighbor, and I especially want to love my brethren as Christ has loved and served me. Can you show me what love is and what love looks like? Now, brethren, we need this, particularly in the day and age in which we live, where there is so much confusion about love. Our culture has removed all elements of law from love. Love is an affection or feeling or passion devoid of principle. In fact, we assert today that love is lawless. Lawless. 
and we justify the breaking of divine law in the name of love. That's where we are now. We must allow babies in the womb to be killed because of love. Love for the mother and and even love for the unborn so they don't have to grow up in poverty or whatever. We must accept all sexual perversion because love is love. I can take your property because love. So in a sense, our culture asserts love is law rather than seeing the law as a manifestation of love. Now let's see this further as we come thirdly to the parameters of love. I've already really opened this up, but I want to do this more. The parameters of love. And we're asking the question, who or, what, who or what decides what love looks like? If I were teaching this at the University of Louisville, and we open this up, who gets to decide what love looks like? What's the answer? I do. My heart does. My loins do. Is it loving? To allow a man to forsake his wife and chase after another man or woman because he has to be true to himself and that's the most loving thing. We stand at the verge of a cultural acceptance. I don't know if I'd say the verge, right? We're already there in many cases. Of even gross forms of things like pedophilia. And more and more because of the love is love mentality. We're seeing a push in some places toward this. And that's what happens when you lose all definition of love and all fear of God and all obedience to moral law. And what we need to understand is this. The God who is, is a God so full of love that it can be said of him that he is love. So where does so who gets to define love? God does. And where does he define it? In his word, in his commandments, in his law. Verse 9, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, James says essentially the same thing in James 2. Now, this is very interesting, and, uh, but follow along for a moment on this. In the context, James is dealing with the sin of partiality. Remember that? Rich man comes into the church and you treat him a certain way. <clears throat> and he's going to deal with the argument that some might have had that, I'm just trying to love my neighbor as myself. He goes, okay. If you really fulfill the royal law, and by fulfill is that there is a practical way. Look, there is a practical way. When I don't commit adultery against my wife, when I don't pursue some other woman or girl outside of the marriage, I am fulfilling the law. When a child honors his father and mother, they are fulfilling the law. Again, not savingly, not justifyingly, but they're doing what the law says. There's a way and that's done. You see that in the Old Testament. They built the tabernacle according to everything that God had commanded. Make it this high. It's exactly that high. Make it that long. It's exactly that long. Make it out of this skin. Exactly out of that skin. They fulfilled the law. 
didn't, weren't justified by that, but they did do what the law says. So if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. That's really what's going on. What James is really saying, come on. <laughs> That's not what you're doing. But if you really were doing that, great. Because the law says, love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So which law said, which of the Ten Commandments said you shall not show partiality? Well, the answer is really, well, all of them kind of, you know, because it, it, it's unloving to your neighbor. That is to say, there are righteous extrapolations and uh, uh, applications of the law. As you work yourself, well, I, I wasn't strictly committing adultery, right? That kind of an idea. Well, listen, he says, look, when you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors, the law which says to love your neighbor. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. And now what does he go to? Not circumcision, not feast days, not dietary laws, and not civil law. He goes to moral law. For he said you shall do not commit adultery, also said do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Now there are, therefore, righteous extrapolations from the law. It's the law, the royal law. The law of love forbids partiality. Again, doesn't have to explicitly say it. When it's general application is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the scriptures tell us in Psalm 119 that God's commandments are exceedingly broad. And that we can meditate upon the depth and breadth of that law, what it means. So that when it forbids murder, now this is in accordance with Revelation, but it does help us. It also forbids hate. And when it says not to commit adultery, it includes all form of sexual sin, including our thought life. And transgressions toward the life, body or innocence of another, is a transgression of the law. Well, where does it say I can't grab a woman by her? Does it have to say that? That you don't know? That's a transgression of the law. To show partiality is to withhold due love, respect, and affection. That's what partiality is. Partiality is the withholding of due love, respect, and affection based on what a person lacks, wealth, or position, or what they may possess. In some cases, historically speaking, education, wealth, uh, skin, race, gender, whatever the case might be, I'm going to treat you differently because you either lack or you have. Now, this brings us finally to see the practical heart of love. Romans 13, verse 10. Sometimes this helps us. You know, we, we have 
We need simple things sometimes in our lives, simple parameters. You know, there's, what, 659 laws in the Old Testament. Well, let me boil it down to two. You want to know what it looks like? It looks like loving God and loving your name. You know know what the holy your duty is? And if you want to put a little bit of flesh on it, it looks like honoring God, loving him, worshiping him according to his commandments on his day, etc. And it looks like honoring, respecting those in authority and protecting the a life and, 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 and marriage and all of the rest. But he says this now, love does no harm to a neighbor. It does no ill will, no ill, no wrong, as other translations have it, to a neighbor. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Oh, there's something negatively done said here. Look, look, just don't hurt anybody. Yeah, there are things love does. There's also something love doesn't do. I thought of the Hippocratic Oath. You know, do no first do no harm. At the very least, we can argue love does no harm. There is, and we need to remember this and and, and side with God and his word here, there is nothing in the law that harms a man. There's nothing in the law that harms a man, a woman, a boy, or a girl. Now, they may not see it that way. And they may say that by us confronting or forbidding their sin, that we are a great impediment to their happiness. But if that so-called happiness increases the wrath of God toward them or a society, then a love that promotes their true happiness, their true well-being is what we need to stand on. Not trying to hurt you. I'm not trying to harm you. I'm trying to strip you of a delusion which will harm you in this world and in the world to come. And sometimes by that confrontation of an evil, we really are doing the most loving thing that we can do. Even if it is perceived by some as harm. Do no harm. But let's think more practically in regard, perhaps, to our more daily life. What are things that cause harm? What are ways in word or deed that we harm another, belittle another, crush another? Are there ways in which we harm their body, take away their innocence, harm their souls, harm their reputation? You see, love has no ill will. Love never desires the destruction of another, but their best. So a servant of the Lord deals gently with those in opposition, with the hope that God will grant them repentance and escape the snare of the devil. Once they're good. Now again, because my own heart may be twisted or perverse, I need a standard outside of myself to show what Love is and what, what love looks like. I am being loving towards you. Well, look, you, you, you may assert that in that way. We have to guard ourselves. Is my confrontation of this evil genuinely born out of a heart that says, I desire to do no, no, no ill? So if I am to fulfill the law, 
That means you do what the law says. And again, we can't escape this language. It's, it's, it, here it is again. Love is the fulfillment of the law. If I'm to do that, and I've woven this throughout, and I want to end here because we're coming to the table. If I'm to really love my neighbor as myself, I need something other than a law written with a finger of God on a tablet of stone. Because I cannot think of the language of the fulfillment of the law without thinking of that one who came to fulfill the law and the prophets. We cannot think of the fulfillment of the law without thinking of that one who fulfilled every obedience and every obligation of the law, every type and every shadow, and who did it as love demands at great personal cost so that he would do for us all that was needed to save us in our sin and in our shame. In this is love, not that we have loved God, and not even that we have preeminently loved our neighbor, crucial as that is. But do you want to know what love is? It's not what you do that defines love. It's what God has done. And we are to celebrate an aspect of earthly love to one another even in, the, even in this taking of, of the bread and the wine, there is a communal aspect. And that's why in order to take it worthily, we have to deal with our hearts toward each other. But what we are celebrating is not how much we love each other, though that will be on display. We are celebrating that love divine, all love is excelling. You can never begin to pay the debt of love, until you have experienced the redemption that love has purchased. Why am I really motivated to love when love's hard? When love requires a withering of the flesh and a trip to the cross to die to myself? It's because of the one who went to that cross willingly for me. All this is rooted. It's rooted in the mercies of God. Folks, I wanted, to, I wanted to anchor it there at the beginning, and I want to anchor it here at the end. These are the great poles on which all of this hang. And without the mercies of God stabilizing us at the beginning of our Christian life and moving and motivating us throughout our Christian life, if we're just trying to love each other, oh, how wearisome, sadly how wearisome love can be because of what's in you and what's in me that makes a conflict of the ease of love. But when I consider that one who came and lived and died for me, then I can love another as I have been loved. Well, let's pray and let's ask God's blessing on these things. Our Father, thank you for this time together. We do pray your blessing on it. We ask, living God, that you would aid us now as we come to the celebration of the supper and the not just the remembrance of Christ, but come by faith to feed upon him in this means of grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.